0: Hi, welcome to Pitttown Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Tonight's Bible reading is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. First of all then, I urge that that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument.
1: Thanks so much, Maddie. G'day, everyone. Isn't it good to be together here, gathering as God's people? And uh, let me say good day also to those who are through the camera, through the keyhole, uh, over the way in the church building and indeed at home. It's great to be with you guys as well. I'm just gonna set up my phone here with a little counter on it, which is gonna say 20 minutes. This morning you might like to know by accident i put on 20 hours. And you can imagine the congregation in the morning were very pleased when I changed it to 20 minutes. Hey, uh, this is very exciting because we're going to continue in our series through the book of Timothy. Um, I'm with you uh, opening God's Word together over this week and next week. We're going to look at all of chapter 2 over two weeks. I've kind of entitled it Praying and Preaching in God's Household. And this week we're going to be looking particularly at prayer and worshipping God's household as we go through those verses Maddie's just read for us uh, in... Um, Uh, Yeah, verses 1 to 8. And I guess in summary what I want to say is as God's household, we're told that prayer and God's word are central to living godly lives. I think we also encounter in these verses possibly uh, the most controversial verses in the Bible. One of them we're going to read today. There might be some controversial verses next week as well. And uh, as we pray to God, our Father in heaven, uh, really what we want to do is follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, don't we? Now, um, it's interesting that this week, uh, the Collect, which is kind of an Anglican gathering of ideas for prayer for this week, recalls a fellow called Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was uh, a minister and a theologian in the 1800s in England. And as it happened, I was reading this book, And uh, this book is a a, a series of biographies. It's called 12 Faithful Men. I reckon it's a great thing to read biographies of Christian people in history. And I happened to read the biography of Charles Simeon. And so as I'm reading this, I I found out some stuff about Simeon that I didn't know. Um, For the most part, he was a highly unpopular minister of of the gospel uh, during his time in ministry. He lived in Cambridge. Uh, he was uh, elected into a role as a fellow at King's College, Cambridge University. But he also had responsibility for a church called Holy Trinity. And uh, the reason that um, Simeon was unpopular is uh, twofold. Firstly, he preached the gospel. He was a preacher of the gospel, in which we hear that there is the exclusivity of the claim of Jesus Christ to be the one mediator between God and men. And so that made him unpopular, because it's an exclusive gospel. But the other thing that made him unpopular as well is he had an inclusive gospel. In as much as he said with Jesus, I'm the only way, it's exclusive, but if you will come to me, that's all that requires, everybody may come to me, you're all included. And that made him very unpopular with some of the people of the church, In fact, they really liked having their special pews and their special seats and their special way of doing things. And they got to the point where they actually shut the doors so Simeon couldn't go in and preach. And they kind of locked off the pews because in the old days, they had pews and you had kind of a little lock and key on there. And so it is that with Simeon, there's this fairly strong struggle for ministry. It was hard work. He's preaching an exclusive gospel, but a gospel for everyone. And it was hard for him physically and it was hard for him relationally and it was hard for him spiritually and hard for him emotionally. And I imagine sometimes it might feel a little hard for some of us as we try to live out the gospel and share the good news of Jesus, the only son of God come into the world to save us from our sins on a cross and to assure us of hope through his resurrection that we may have eternal life in his name and that he's alive now and reigning in heaven at the right hand of our father. Well, that's kind of why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. You'll remember from the last couple of weeks, he's written to Timothy and said to Timothy, appoint some elders over this, uh, this little fledgling church in Ephesus. And he says to Timothy that, that, that there's a bit of a struggle going on, you'll remember, and that's made clear to us again, I think, in the very first verse of chapter 2. Have a look with me because we're going to follow along together. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, In some of our translations, not all of them have this word, oddly, therefore, or then in the NIV, and some don't have it at all. And whenever there's a therefore in the text, you want to ask what the therefore is there for, right? And the therefore, I think, is there because it's connecting us to the third verse of the first chapter in which Paul says to Timothy, command certain people to no longer teach false doctrines. He's saying, tell them not to teach falsehood about Jesus and his gospel. Therefore, I urge you. And so um, we're going to pray because we need God's help, don't we? Actually, a lovely thing about Simeon's memoir is he kind of summarized in one of his memoirs, uh, his lessons as a minister. He said there's three things gospel ministers need to need to know and to live out. One, humility. Two, humility. Humility. Three, you see where this is going? Three humility. So let's uh, bow our heads before our Father in heaven and ask for his help, shall we? Father God, we pray that you please move us in heart and mind as we study your word, uh, not only with Simeon, but with Paul and with one another, and indeed in the company of your spirit. And in the words of the collect for this week, eternal God, who raised up Charles Simeon to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and inspire your people in service and mission, grant that we with all your church may worship the Saviour turn in sorrow from our sins, and walk in the way of holiness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now, for those who like to follow along, I'm going to make three points from the text. The first one is this, praying for people. That's verses 1 to 4. The second point will be praying in Jesus' name. That's verses 5 and 6. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to be looking at praying for peace. And that's those last two verses, 7 and 8. So look with me again. Therefore, verse 1, I urge first of all, first priority, for petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made. Notice that Paul doesn't adopt the Acts paradigm for prayer, although that's a good one. You know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. Paul's got his own model here. There's a bit of ink that's been spilled about what that really means. But I think probably in summary, the petitions are requests, not demands. I think the prayers are basically things that are brought to God. I think the intercessions can be prayers on behalf of yourself or behalf of others or even kind of Uh, sort of asking for God to forgive the sins of others when they forget to. Um, The word itself literally means urgent appeal, so kind of not a laziness in praying. And thirdly, thanksgiving, which is a posture not of entitlement, but of gratitude towards God. And so here it is, Paul says, I urge, first of all, that these prayers be made. As a boy, my dad used to cough a lot. He had a lung condition. And so um, every morning and every night, I'd, I'd hear him in the bathroom, cough, cough, cough. And I'd pray to God, you know, little prayers of a little boy. Dear God, please don't let my dad die. If you do, I'll be a good boy. It's a kind of sad little prayer, isn't it, in a way? But actually, I think sometimes our prayers are a bit like that, aren't they? Transactional. God, if you do this, I'll do this. But actually, God says to us, yeah, come to me like little children, because I love you. But it's not Transactional. <laughs> It's his grace. He loves us to come to him. He loves us to come to him expressing our desires, not making our demands, but simply saying, I'm your child, God. And this is the posture that's consistent with Paul's letter to Timothy here. It's a privilege to pray. But he also says, I urge you. It has imperatival force. In other words, you really need to do this as a child of God, but do do it. Do not neglect prayer. And firstly, um, who who do we pray for? Have a look. Oh, it says everyone. That's radical. (laughs) Because of course, remember, the chosen people of God felt quite exclusive. It would not necessarily cross their mind to be praying for everyone, especially not for Gentiles. And dear old Paul here who's the guy you remember, was converted from persecuting the followers of Yeshua, of Jesus, to become then the one who not only took the gospel to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. He's being drawn by God into being in front of, well, all their leaders. And he says, not only pray for everyone, but also, verse 2, pray for kings and all those who are in authority. You remember Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 1, and says, let everyone be submitted to governing authorities because The only authority that exists is those that God has established. And he says, pray for kings and those in authority. Now, does that mean that we choose who we pray for in authority? I choose for Trump. I pray for him. I pray for Biden. No, no, no. He's saying here, pray for all those in authority. That means that we're not selective. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that I tend to not pray for those in authority. I just moan about them. Kind of whinge on you know, palm, yeah, but I whinge a bit or complain a bit about those in authority. Sometimes I go, gee, he's good and I exalt him or her. They're really good in authority. But uh, Paul saying, no, no, no. <laughs> what you want to do is to pray for those in authority. What do you pray for them? For their well-being, that they be good and just, that they perhaps have wisdom, maybe even to pray for their salvation. But actually, Paul specifically gives the main reason why we should pray. Have a look with me at verse 2. It says, pray so that we may lead a peaceful or tranquil and quiet life unable to testify in life in all godliness and dignity. So that's the main purpose here for praying for those in authority. And he, he goes on to say, verse 3, this is good. Praying for the lives that we may live to testify to God and his goodness And the dignity of his being through us. This is pleasing to our saviour God. How does Paul know this is pleasing to God? Who could dare to say they know the mind of God? Well, Paul. Because right at the beginning, you remember, in chapter 1, he says, I'm an apostle, and I'm the one that God has uh, set aside to do this on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And in a moment or two, he's going to remind us of these things. I have the authority of God, and I can say with authority, verse 4, that God wants everyone to be saved. We read in John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. And Jesus indeed says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is God's way to come into relationship with him. Paul says, pray for those in authority for all people so that we might have the opportunity to testify in thought and word and deed, what it means to be godly, dignified people. And in all of this, of course, that's dependence, isn't it? We depend upon God to work through us. We humble ourselves before God and in all humanity, we begin to reflect more and more the person of Jesus as we ask that all may be saved into his family. So that's my first point today that we're praying for people. Now notice what um, Paul does next when he goes to verse 5. He shows us, my second point, that we can pray, but only in Jesus' name. It's a hard truth of the Christian faith, this, that God desires the salvation of all, but he decrees the salvation only of some. God distinguishes. It's quite hard for us sometimes to get our heads around this, isn't it? Thankfully, it's not our job to work it out. Simply, our business is to pray for the salvation of all people. And I wonder sometimes whether our hearts get a bit selective. I whether sometimes wonder if we go a bit for that low-hanging fruit. I've had a really interesting week this week. I, I went to the server and I got chatting to a guy behind the counter and gave him a Bible. He was a Sikh. He's not the first person I thought would be interested in Jesus. But as we talked, he said he's going to read the book. A conversation this week with somebody who's a Muslim about Jesus. These things have surprised me. You know, God chooses who's going to respond to the message of his Saviour. And it's God who does this, verse 5, because look, there is one God. This is not unfamiliar to Jewish hearers. They remember from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because we know God to be not only one God, but three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's been the way all the way from the beginning. Because even in the very first verses of Genesis, we see that the name for God, Elohim, is a plural presentation of God. Three persons, one God, one God and one mediator, the Son, between God and humanity. Now, if you have the opportunity to listen to um, our forthcoming uh, senior minister next year, Craig Hamilton, on the conversation with Craig, um, which Sarah Stonebreaker did online, uh, you would have heard him talking about the nature of Christ Jesus as man. And he's written a book on it, Made Man. And uh, he got to uh, talking about and reminding us about the extraordinary nature of Jesus, that he is unique, that he is God and man in one. And Jesus takes uh, an extraordinary posture towards his people. He says, I am the only way. You can only come to God in my name. But he's the most inclusive person in history. (laughs) He says, if you will come to me, and bow the knee before me, then I will take you. He offers to mediate between God and man. He can make us right with God, and he's the only one who can make us right with God because, verse 6, having given himself as a ransom for all, his testimony was at the proper time. Because Jesus, in his death on the cross, gave his life in my place and yours. That is the purpose of his death on the cross. And the finished work of Jesus is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. In other words, it is sufficient for everybody in the world who's ever lived. But it is effective, it is efficient only for those who belong to his family. Now, I can't think of a better way of describing that. That God died, Jesus in, uh, sorry, God in the person of his son, Jesus died on a cross, sufficient for everyone, but efficient only for those whom he has chosen. And in hearing that, we recognise, of course, that none of us deserve to be numbered amongst his family. The work is sufficient, but not all are saved. Some of us can feel sad about that, right? But, of course, none of us deserve to be saved anyway. So the very fact that Jesus saved some is an enormous blessing of God's grace. Now, I just want to leave us with a question in this section about praying in Jesus' name. I want to know if you are sure that if you would die tonight that you would be in heaven with Jesus. Are you sure that if you were to die tonight that you would be in heaven with Jesus? Are you? Because Jesus offers that assurance. If you put your trust completely in him, in what he has done on the cross for you, you can have the assurance that his finished work is what carries you through death and into the other side in heaven. See, sometimes I wonder whether when we say, yeah, I'm sure that I'm going to be in heaven if I die tonight, we kind of think to ourselves, but the reason I'm going to be there is because I've been a good person or because I continue to do the good works that God has prepared for me and so that kind of secures my place there. The scriptures tell us that the only reason that we will be with Jesus tonight if we were to die in heaven is because of him, only through what he has done and not through anything that we can do or contribute in and of ourselves. And if this is news to you, let me encourage you to talk perhaps to the friend you've come with or perhaps to, um, to talk to one of the elders on, on team or, or even perhaps to do the Introducing Jesus course that we run every term, which will unpack that more for you. Because this is the most important realisation that I came to in my life. And when you talk to people who know the Lord Jesus, we confess that that is what it is. We only come to God in Jesus' name. And so come to Jesus. Ask his forgiveness. Say sorry for all that you've done. There is nothing that you have done that is too big for the cross of Christ to keep you separated from your father in heaven if you put your faith in Jesus. That's the privilege of knowing God as a father and being a child in his family, knowing his power, and finally, knowing his peace. This is my third and final point for us today, and it's about the peace that comes through prayer. You see, Paul confirms, my third point, that there's a priority of peace between God and man, but also between Jew and Gentile. There'd been many years during which the Jewish chosen people of God had seen themselves only as the ones with whom God related. Uh, Certainly Gentiles were welcomed into that covenant community, but in Jesus, he broke down all the barriers. And basically Paul, in his mind, fulfilled the purpose of Israel in sharing the good news of the Messiah, of Jesus, with the Gentiles. And so it is that there can be peace across every ethnic barrier. I met a Christian man many years ago, over in Thailand, and he shared with me how he had become a follower of Jesus, because he had been in the civil war in Persia, where he had Muslim brother on one side, Muslim brother on another, and eventually he was standing in a sea of Muslim bodies, and he said, these are my brothers. It was only through the person of whom he understood as Isa Ramassi, as Jesus the Messiah, that he was able to have peace with God and understand that God is a God of genuine peace who can bring peace. Now, I'm not going to try and dupe you here because in verses 7 to 8, we don't actually have the word peace in here. However, look with me at verse 8. It says, therefore, I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Now, let me just ask you, if you're without anger and you're without argument, do you have conflict or do you have peace? Right, that's a situation of peace, right? So, So it's very clear, Paul's saying, I want you to be in the place where you have peace with one another as well as with God. So that's how I'm leveraging this. And we also get this verse here where Paul says, I'm speaking on behalf of God in what I'm saying. I was appointed a herald and an apostle, you will remember. Also, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. And I am a teacher to whom? The Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, that the problem we've heard over the last couple of weeks is that in the Ephesian church, there's this little group of people who want to wear the cool hats and sit in the groovy chairs. Rather like in Simeon's day, they want to say, no, 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 we've got our own heritage. We're in the line of so-and-so. We've got the credential of so-and-so. You know, it's quite familiar in the Jewish mindset to look at genealogies and have lists of people to whom you are linked. No, it goes. But what Paul's saying here is, hang on. You can't exclude the Gentiles from fellowship in Christ. You can't exclude anybody from fellowship in Christ. Even the impossible people that you would never imagine to invite, Jesus invites them to, will you? Will you pray for peace and transcend those human barriers, cultural barriers, ethnic barriers, and confer an invitation through prayer and dependence upon God to see hearts changed? Now, if this is true, Let me ask you this, if Jesus is the only way to God and he wants all us to be saved, will you pray for Turkey? Why do I pick on Turkey? Because it's kicking off. Erdogan's going a bit haywire at the moment. I think it'd be really good to pray for Turkey as a nation. On the other hand, will you give your money to the church in Nepal? Why do I choose Nepal? Because I don't think most of us would have thought about Nepal in the last month or so, but I have a Nepalese friend and I know a lady who did serve the Lord Jesus over in Nepal and so it's keenly on my mind, so will you give to the church in Nepal? If we ever make it, God willing, to Indonesia, will you come and visit us in Jakarta? Now, I've had people say, I'd love to come and see you in Bali. Bali's beautiful. Jakarta's not so nice. Will you come and see us and pay the price and come to see us in Jakarta, in Indonesia? Or will you go to India? It's rampant COVID there. It's a very difficult place to live and minister spiritually, a very dark place in the grip of, of a completely different belief system. But, but would you be willing to go to India? Or would you imagine that all these places and people are just somehow off God's radar? and that you might not be able to be his agent for them. I think we discriminate. I think we also, a bit closer to home, discriminate against those whom we love, especially those who've hurt us. Don't you think so? That sometimes we withhold God's grace to those who've hurt us? You hurt me. I don't want to give you grace. I remember when I was uh, a little younger, someone upset me. They were very rude. They were unkind to me. Uh, I was a Christian, they were a Christian. But I began to wonder whether they were really a Christian. How could you affront me so? I made sure that I spoke out. I was immature, so I told everyone, except them. And then after a while, a wiser brother came and stood by me and said, Robin, do you think you might begin to pray for this person, that you might spend a month every morning and evening praying for this person, that there might be peace between you even though this has happened? So I did. It was wise counsel. And by God's grace, slowly, my posture changed. You know, quarrelling and grumbling and arguing aren't supposed to have a place amongst God's people. But my sort of tight heart began to soften as I prayed for them. So that in time, I began to appreciate what they were doing for the Lord Jesus, how they were impacting lives. And then eventually, the Lord has seen fit to raise this person up to a very significant position within the institutional church. And I'm glad. See, the odd thing about prayer is it brings peace. It removes the burden of conflict, not only between us and our perceived enemies, or indeed between us and those whom we love most, because I know that those whom we love most can sometimes be the one who hurt us most and vice versa. And that's a burden and a tension, isn't it? But also because it brings peace in our hearts. And this is where we pray and worship. When we pray for peace, we can bring through our role as ministers of reconciliation, people into peace with God, peace between people and one another, and peace in our own hearts as we see the transforming power of Christ. Let me finish with this verse from the Lord Jesus himself. When asked about praying to God, Jesus noted that even good gifts can be given by loved ones to their family members. He says this, he says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you all the shiny trinkets your heart desires and all the nice cars. And t- no, hang on a minute. It doesn't say anything of the sort there, does it? Luke 13, uh, 11, 13, it says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who would ask him? Because that is his gift to us, the spirit of grace and truth working through you and me in prayerful dependence upon him to transform lives and bring more and more of his precious children into our family." Praise God. May we live lives of worship to his glory. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you for the privilege of knowing the gospel, of sharing the gospel, for the gift of prayer. We can do nothing without your involvement because it is your ministry of which we are part. And so we pray, Lord God, for our service of you with great joy as your children, not under sufferance, not under demand, but rather the freedom that we have. May we take every cent and every second for Jesus and lay it at his feet, And then, Father, we pray that into time when prayer in faith becomes praise in sight, that we would rejoice in our eternal worship together with those who you've chosen to change and transform through our weak efforts to minister to others in the ministry of prayer. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.